Welcome to the Drunk Guys Book Club, where books aren't just for school, where book clubs aren't just for women, and we're giant fans of beer. I'm Mike. I'm Nate. I'm Jimmy. And we're the Drunk Guys, and this week we're reading a fan's notes by Frederick Exley, and starting with a beer. So this book, uh, published in 1968, definitely 1968, is uh, the story <laughs> of the main character. It's, it's, it's a fictional memoir. But the main character we can empathize with, he's a raging alcoholic. And throughout the book, he drinks shit tons of like bourbon and whiskey, lots of beer, but barely any wine. This beer's called Barely Wine. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to do a barley wine. I was like, oh, I see. This is a barley wine. Damn it. But it's called Barely Wine. And it is from Evil Twin New York City. And it is a fresh barrel aged well <laughs> a fresh barley wine blended with a 30 month red wine barrel aged barley wine conditioned on vanilla coming in at 13 percent. so it's a beer mixed with another barley wine yeah it's um pro- yeah they, they made uh they put out a whole bunch of um barrel aged barley wines a few months ago and i guess they saved a batch of it and blended it with this new one which is an interesting choice uh, i'm not sure why you would do that because you can yeah but like why would you take this much more expensive, or maybe there's just not that much of the very expensive barley wine in there, you know? Could be. Because th- something that's aged in, you know, barrels costs a lot more money than something that's just freshly brewed. Uh, but it tastes like, you know, it's it's a, I mean, you do, you, there is like a, a grapey, a grapey snap smell to it, like, but it, it kind of smells like old fruit. Like it's not, maybe that's a, a barrel thing. It's Okay. I don't love it. Uh, I bought a four pack of it. This is the only the second, like months ago, this is only the second one I'm drinking. So mm. I'm aging the other ones. Maybe I'll blend them with a newer <laughs> barley wine. Oh my. And it'll be like even more mediocre. <laughs> so this book was recommended to us by a patron. So thank you, um, Brent, for suggesting this, um, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is, as the author says, it is a fictionalized uh, memoir. So he, admits to like changing names but also just completely fabricating whole things and there's even a couple points within the book where he sort of breaks the fourth wall and talks about how when i wrote this i didn't know which part of the sto- how to fake this part of the story so it's kind of disorienting like yeah good the luck whole trying thing to figure is disorienting much like being fucking hammered drunk all the time and schizophrenic <laughs> oh yeah there's there's stuff wrong so it's kind of i'm not 100 percent clear on the on the uh timeline of this book like because it's not told oh, in sequence. It's not clear it's, at all. It, it isn't, as far as I could tell, the one date he put in was graduating, finishing high school or finishing high school around 1945. That's in sort, and I'm assuming going off to college more or less right around, you know, 46, 47, which means he would have finished around like 50, 51, and then that's when he goes off to New York for the first time to try and make it in the ad business, and that doesn't do well. And then in one of the final chapters, he talks about Johnson's Great Society, so it's like, hmm, wow, that w- which was 64, 65? So anyway, it actually is quite a few years. It really is like 20 years he's talking about. But you don't get a sense. You get a sense of it's it's a while, but I didn't think it was actually that long. What also is confusing, besides it being told out of sequence and not really clearly, you know, signposted as to where we are, is that 
half of the time he's in either a mental institution or just like a de-drunking farm. (laughs) Or on a Davenport. That's the other half is the Davenport half of the book. (laughs) But half of it is him in a, you know, the, the, the drunk farm or the nut house. But he goes to several. So you're not clear. Like, is he back in the same one or is this a different one? And yeah. sometimes it's one or the other of those Sometimes scenarios. he'll change time, like years, like three paragraphs into something and then jump back again. And it's, it's sometimes it's, you're not really sure if it's A, really happening or B, when. And there are extended passages of him, of him describing fantasies. Yeah. And sometimes you're not, you don't realize it's a fantasy until about four paragraphs in. It's like, oh, this is suddenly very unrealistic. This one must be not real. The most unrealistic thing was the amount he drank, though. Like You know, you can do anything you put your mind to. At one point in the book when he has, he says beer, the price of beer, this towards the end, had, had skyrocketed to 50 cents a beer. And I only had like $5. $10 or something like that. Yeah, he had $5 like, and he drank the $5 worth of beer. And he's like, I can't even get a buzz off of this. One hour. <laughs> in, in, in one hour. Well, it's That's probably like 10 beers in oh, yeah. one hour. They mentioned, he mentions a couple of different shitty beers like Genesee. Which is an upstate New York beer where the book takes place. Bud, Pabst, I think it's mentioned. So he's drinking, he's drinking piss beer, but that's all there was in the 50s and the 60s. Unless you were getting like an imported German beer, which was still Beck's. <laughs> it wasn't like very different than today. So he goes to the ad. So the, it's impossible I, to really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't really remember exactly. It starts what, off with him and his teaching. It happens first, but basically oh, it starts off. There. The the scene where he starts is also a, he comes back oh, very close to the end where he's like, I decided to be a teacher and the superintendent said, I know you're a raging alcoholic, but just don't drink in town, please. And then he, and then he talks about being a teacher and then, but it's only for the first couple of pages and then it really doesn't come back for another thousand. The end, it kind of like bookends it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he does. Definitely. Ha ha ha. Because he starts But there was a lot of crazy his, stuff in between. Oh, yeah. Well, he ends up back in... Uh, he's from upstate New York. He ends up back there. Because the whole book, he's been trying to go big. But he ends up going home. That's, that's this pretty is accurate. This is Go Big or Go Home from Departed Souls. It is a Belgian triple. It is gluten-free. So mm. I am hesitantly cautious. So is it's like a, a Belgian, a Belgian one and a half. It's eight and a half percent, so... But it's gluten-free, so it's 8.5% cum. I hope. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of Belgian. It's not as strong flavored. I don't know why. I can't imagine why gluten would make it taste differently. It's gluten's like, it's fucking got, good. But it's like, I mean, is it? Yes. Is gluten itself good? I mean, it's, there's still like fucking wheat in this probably, isn't there? Well, it depends on how they get rid of the gluten. So if they use some fucking exotic xanthan gum bullshit or something that sounds like it's from a science fiction novel in replacement of the gluten-rich malted barley. I don't know. I mean, sorghum? I don't know. They, whatever shit they use instead of gluten has a totally different flavor than the uh, barley. I don't know if there's a way or if it's like cost-effective to like remove gluten. I have no idea how you could... Re- like, I, is it like the it way they make, make non-alcoholic beer where they make a very pussy beer and then they just... F- Reverse osmosis, get the alcohol out of it. I don't know. I mean, they make gluten-free bread, but I couldn't tell you what that means. They use all sorts of other weird, stupid grains. I thought they just removed the gluten from... Because the gluten is a a tangible 
thing. I don't fucking know, actually. I don't know. This uh, beer is fine. It's not all bad. All I know is too much gluten blows your dick off. Uh, I, that was on South Park. Well, I don't know. I've had a lot of gluten in my day. I still have most of my dick. Let's see how you are after the next Thanksgiving. <laughs> this, yeah, this is, it's, it's fine. It's, uh, I will say it's probably the best gluten-free beer I've had. Because Departasol is the one that is always gluten-free, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not the compliment that anyone wants to pay. <laughs> this is the best gluten-free beer. Well, I mean, it depends what you're going for. I mean, well, like, I guess if you're like a celiac person and you're like, I wish just once I could have a beer without shitting blood for a month, then I can wholeheartedly recommend this. I don't have celiac and I have that problem. <laughs> Different reason. Oh, yeah. Because you keep well, it's also, eating I all your machines, Michael. <laughs> so I also butt chug most of my beers, so it's, it, it goes. It, and you do it, it frozen, so the ice shards hurt. It hits the bloodstream quicker. The butt stream. It's not honestly. It's not. It's not bad. It is just like you, I see Belgian triple, and it's like ooh, that'll do it. But this is. It's fine. It's. It's good, but I think the gluten would have helped. So I think. So I, I just want to point one one great line in that passage when he's talking about teaching is he's he's talking about like how unteachably stupid the children are and how oh, stupid but... his co-workers are <laughs> and it, it is his tone for the book like he has this incredibly supercilious tone that he is better than everything and and he's so educated Speaking and of he that, knows so much. what does supercilious mean oh really <laughs> do you want me to define that word <laughs> let's get meta I'm not sure how serious you are. <laughs> no. I don't know. I've heard it, but I couldn't. I guess it means just like super you know. serious. Silius is like literally like thinking you're better than everybody else. Okay, that's that's what it is. I thought it meant like wordy, but that makes more sense. So because um, it's not very silly at all. It's super silly. <laughs> uh, but he's <laughs> he's uh, talking about how dumb everyone else is, and how like the the staff meetings are just everyone's ridiculously uninterested in even teaching and they're illiterate basically and i like this line from a sophomore thought the characters in julius caesar talked quote pretty damn uppity for a bunch of wops <laughs> and a and junior he wasn't wrong a, a junior defined in mufti as attire worn by some kind of sexual freak like a certain ape who sits a few seats from me <laughs> And there's other things I can't even, I'm not even going to say, because some of the language is a little dated. There's some interesting racial things that you it, won't yeah. be surprised at all Interesting. To find. So he's there. And then it just kind of like drifts into, you know, he goes into a bar and he's like, oh, my, here's a picture of my twin sons who I don't see. And they're like toddler age. And, and but he's also, and in the bar, he talks about his obsession with football, with the New York Giants, and about how he lives for his Sundays because where he can go to the bar and drink like crazy. And you don't quite understand how bad his alcoholism is yet. I mean, this is still only like page seven, so there's plenty more time. But he's he's like at the bar and he's like drinking heavily and just like obsessed with the game. And he's like just walking back and forth, bothering everyone else in the bar, I'm sure. And I'm sure he was so obnoxious. And then... He's like with the one Sunday, he's like with the bartender before the game, I think, or there's nobody there. He the helps, bartender he helps says, like, bar. and you know, because he's, you know, the character, Frederick Exley, or X, as everybody, everybody calls him, he said he had told them all about how he, you know, his wife is now divorcing him. And so he'll never see his 
new pretty young like twin sons ever again and and that he's just like a a high school teacher that he doesn't even like it and the bartender makes a joke like huh you're really gonna amount to nothing in life (laughs) or something like that something (laughs) like you know you're you're just a just a nobody the bartender is like his only friend and then exley immediately he thinks he's having a heart attack and then goes to the hospital (laughs) but he's not having a heart attack he's actually realized holy shit, my life is amounting to absolutely nothing. Because his big, his one ambition that he says multiple times in the book is he wants to be famous. He wants to be important. It's like right in the early part of the book there he says, it has to do with his father, but he says he acquired this need to have my name whispered in reverential tones. (laughs) Like it's, it's just essential to him like that's all he wants and he thinks it's owed to him that he should just be famous because of who he is so in in some sense he predicted the modern world where dipshits think that they could just TikTok. have an instagram or a, a podcast people should <laughs> give a fuck about them <laughs> any day now boys we're gonna we're gonna hit it big he also feels this way partly because his dad was locally famous coolest Which dude is, in watertown you know, new york yeah um yeah so he goes to the doctor and the doctor's like you're not having a heart attack get over yourself and then the doctor's like hey earl exley is that your dad and then he goes and then yeah he goes into yeah he was my father and talks about how his father was the most popular guy in town because he was the football hero and just sort of like you know extremely outgoing and everybody loved him and a real piece of everybody but also a very heavy drinker and i forget what like very hard work he did manual labor he did wasn't he like a lineman he He was at a factory yeah something like that anyway but in and also and then his father died of lung cancer when he was 40 he smoked that much he wasn't even a coal miner so you know it um he could have been smoking coal. Could have been. I mean, they they did heat and you know heat everything with coal and cook everything on coal. You know, when he was a kid, I'm sure. But this is back in the day when everybody smoked like relentlessly. You know, packed. Doctor be smoking while delivering a baby, smoking yeah. into the mother. It makes their lungs strong. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is back in, at this point. And the father dies. It's like 19, you know, 40 or something like that. There yeah. were, you know, th- this is when advertisements were still like four out of five doctors recommend Chesterfields. <laughs> like th- it was, there was no and the a fifth public one's a communist. Yeah, <laughs> there was no awareness at all of smoking is bad for you, and it was just it was a thing to do. It was just so his father was probably smoking, you know, three packs of unfiltered menthols every day (laughs) (laughs) or four on the weekends and that was you know before breakfast (laughs) and then so he would uh so his father was incredibly popular and we'll just call him x or x lead the main the actual main character he's not he's oh and this is where yeah frederick fred is his name but yeah. He's rarely says his own name in the book, or people are kind of like, hey, X. He's just known as that like nickname. But, of course, his father was known by the same nickname. Anyway, and so he gets out, and the, the nurse is basically like, you need to join AA because you are an alcoholic. And X is like, yeah, okay. Let me call my sister, see if, she, see if she'll pick me up. And clearly, 
uh, this is a thing that he's had to do multiple times because he only has, what is it, one sister that will even pick up the phone? Oh, no, wait, that was a different character. Um, anyway, so would you call Exley the black sheep of the family? Oh, yeah. They would have used a different term in his day, some of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they would have. This is Black Sheep by Arrowwood Farm Brewery. That and might be this a new is an one. American brown ale. Why it's brown and not black, I don't know, but Yeah, that's kind of an oversight on their part. Should've As Mr. Blue would made later say in this novel, there's nothing American about being brown. <laughs> yeah. Super racist little man. <laughs> My favorite character in the book, I think. He's an interesting one. Pretty pretty crazy. Anyway, this <laughs> is a brown ale. And, yeah, it tastes like beer. <laughs> brown ales all kind of taste the same. Tastes brown. Yeah, it hints, tastes hints like a tan. watery stout. Actually, of just because Sienna. I drink many more stouts than I do brown ales, because I never drink brown ales. So it tastes like a watery stout, and then, yeah. That's my impression of them. A little bit, a little bit chalky. I don't know. It's just, not, it's just not sweet like I'm used to all my stouts being because they're full of, because they have tons of chocolate, maple syrup, vanilla, and um, and, to, and whole baked Alaskas. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like packs of Oreos and shit. We should say that this beverage is brought to us by our supporters over at Patreon. So if you want to support the podcast in a financial way, head over to patreon.com slash drunk guys book club where you could help us out and in return for your support, get early access to episodes, exclusive content, tangible goods, vote, vote every month book. for a book that we're going to do. Yeah. And you get shouted out on the episode. You could even change your name to something humiliating that we will say, as some people have started doing. And, uh, and if you suggest a book in your patron, we will do it. And if you suggest a book and you're not a patron, we'll probably do it. But don't you want to be sure? We might uh, get to the patron book for, books first. We will, we'll make the effort. So patreon.com slash Drunk Guys Book Club if you want to help out the podcast. And if not, just tell a friend to listen to it, leave a review, or just shout it, the name of the podcast, on a crowded train car. Uh, <laughs> that will, <laughs> that will raise, totally raise that awareness. Will help a lot. <laughs> Guerrilla marketing. <laughs> or maybe like in, a, in a, a public bathroom, like in a stall, just like grunt that out. <laughs> John Guy's Book Club. And people are like, whoa, that guy's, that's an intense dump. Whatever you, whatever you want to do, I'd, we'd, we'd appreciate it. Every little bit helps. Whatever helps get the, the word out or the turd out if you're in the stall. <laughs> so he goes to the, the, uh, the drunk farm for a while. And is this the part now where it turns into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and there's a character that's basically McMurphy? Yes. Uh, who's Patty At the Duke? Point, I wasn't sure because she picks him up. But then he goes to the drunk farm. But was that was it the flashback to the to the asylum? I, it's because oh, honestly, there's sometimes there's no way to tell when things are happening because it jumps yeah. around a lot. I thought it was uh, a flashback, uh, th- but it very easily couldn't have might not have been. No, it was a flashback. You're right because it's a earlier part in his life. He wasn't married. But then again, he like never really talks about getting married. No, he just, suddenly no, he, he is all wife. of a sudden married. I, I was pretty sure I missed it, but then I realized no, it just, suddenly he was married. Because uh, that wasn't something that he remembered or cared to remember. <laughs> he was much more interested in how much he got fucking hammered and abused his friendships and family members. You know, well, typical addict behavior. Guy. Yeah, I mean, so anyway, he talks about being in the in the asylum. Well, I forget what it was called. Right, Avalon. Avalon. There you go. 
how he, they had him on insulin. Yeah, and they made him fat. Insulin ins- syndrome. Insulin, insulin shock, shock treatments, treatment. Where they which just like inject you with insulin. <laughs> I had never, I'd never heard of doing that, and it sounds barbaric. I think they stopped to do doing somebody. it. Probably, yeah. <laughs> But then they also that wasn't working, so the doctor prescribes electroshock therapy at the same time. So they're actually doing both. But really, I mean, you, you well, not only is he uh, an alcoholic, so it's really just like addiction is his problem. But I felt he also was probably bipolar. Well, they diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic in this, though back then, who knows what that would have meant. Yes, exactly. I mean, he went through. He uh, later, I noticed that he went through phases of like fever, feverishly working on things with inflated ideas of of how successful it's going to be. And then, like he he much later, he like spends a whole year writing th- hundreds of pages of a book, thousands, just like just just work, just working, He's writing working, like working. Fifteen thousand pages, fifteen thousand words a day. And then after a while, he's like, okay, it's he. It's time to edit it. And so he decides to read it over. Like, I'm going to actually read over my work. And he reads it over once while really drunk. And then immediately puts it in the fire and burns it all. And he's like, this is way too hard to actually edit this. That was this book. Yeah. That's what became this book the second time around. But the first time around, he wrote it. As he writes all of his shit. He never, he never publishes anything. He but gets he a few rejection a letters. Uh, but a lot of his stuff just ends up as untitled art. <laughs> <laughs> this is black and blue chocolate chip pancake stout. Oh my God. <laughs> Ooh. From Sweet Moses. untitled art. And they named, they named it that. They're like, we're tired of all these fucking beer names that don't make any sense. This is just called what it is. And this is a imperial stout with blackberry and blueberry puree, cacao nibs, maple syrup, and milk sugar. Sweet. From Wanakee, Wisconsin. And it is 9% alcohol, which is surprisingly low. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, smells, it smells rich. Oh, God, that's incredible. <laughs> Yo, that, that's straight up blueberry pancakes. Goddamn. I don't know how they did it. You did it, you clever bastards, you. Goddamn geniuses. <laughs> this is the peak of humanity. Shut it down, guys. We're done. This is the last episode. <laughs> Go home. Go home, everyone. <laughs> I'm jealous. It's really good. It's, it's, uh, it's surprisingly light. I'm very jealous. For like a <laughs> blueberry chocolate chip pancake stout. It's pretty light. Does it come with a side? Does it come with like an insulin shot? Is, is, is no, that, this is, this is my insulin up for shot that, yeah. treatment right here. It's going to cure my bipolar disorder. Or my cure having a full number of toes. <laughs> I, I did, uh, there's a part. <laughs> Jimmy looks like he just ate a whole pile of pancakes now. I it's feel just, like I, I've, I've only had, you know, not even a third of this can. And I feel, uh, you know, it, it didn't feel. That was a feel, fast didn't third, feel that dude. That, that was a even, quick Not third. even a third. Not even a third. A quarter? Uh, it, you know, it fractions? Feel, it feels light when drinking, but afterwards you feel like you've just had a, you know, a few pancakes. <laughs> That's, that, they should be hiring you to write copy for their beer. Well, their whole, their whole copy is, this is what it is, and they're, they're right. They Drink this beer, it. you'll right. feel like you ate a bunch of pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, they probably quote his, like, 
Oh, God, this is amazing. <laughs> Quote, drunk Jimmy. <laughs> drunk guy Jimmy. Getting drunk on pancakes. That's the dream, baby. That is. That's, that is. It's up there with rum ham. <laughs> rum ham. Uh, so there's this one line when he's in, you know, he, he kind of goes back and forth, like, thinking he's smarter than the therapists and doesn't want to participate. And I like when uh, he finally opens up and tells them something early on in the book. He goes, then I proceeded to tell him something from my past that I had told no one before him, nor will ever tell again. My eyes avoiding his, I spoke in the fitful, hesitant monosyllables of grief. When finally finished and exhausted with relief, as one is with the ultimate confession, I looked up to make sure that he had understood me utterly. The room drifted away beneath me. The dizzying blood rushed to my head. Something in me snapped. I broke. On his face was written the unmistakable legend of distaste. (laughs) (laughs) So even when he tried, like... The state of medicine is not very good. Like they're just they're just like w- one step away from leeches. It's- I got the sense that that part that he had told him that something he'd done in his past that even the psychiatrist was like, "Dude, you're fucked up." I wasn't sure if it was gonna be that or like some. He was like molested. Like I don't know what it could have been, but I, I guess it had to be something I, he I think did. He did something that the guy, even the guy, the shrink was just like, "You're a piece of shit." <laughs> But in the book, I mean, he's a, he is a piece of shit, but does he do anything like that unspeakably no, bad? No, uh, you know, there's some weird lines. There's some weird stuff about the women he takes home from bars where they're like crying and telling him no, and they, they go for it anyway. And it's like, I don't really understand. I, I remember that part. Okay. It's so, hard to really understand what's actually happening. But it was that was pretty intense. I that did not part, really get which it. I think is when he's like goes to Chicago. He goes to Chicago and he's kind of having the time of his life and you know banging a new girl every night. But the way I read that part, because I was hoping he didn't mean yeah, he wasn't, that he, wasn't he, just he said that women of the time, because it was the early fifties, needed to try to pretend that they were either they were still virgins or they were just like that yeah. they were not into it because it was this is part of the book being a comment on the 1950s repressive culture and that he said that women were pretending to be asleep or pretending to be i guess i felt like that's what he was saying that they pretended that to be asleep y- you can hope so that they could then pretend that they weren't into it or that they weren't actually having sex i guess it's like the baby it's cold outside song. <laughs> like, you like, like, oh no, I can't. He's like, come on, like, let's yeah. go home. I mean, it's it's really hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, that is the best case scenario that yes, they're just like mm-hmm. being I don't know, coy. But but usually still, doesn't end with tears. Like, like, oh, they're crying and saying no. That must mean she really wants it. Like, I I don't know what to do with that information. I mean that was that was pretty bad. Uh, there, he didn't mention like banging any kids. That was not a thing he did. Or is it? Because he won't tell us. He won't tell us what the thing is. I mean, he's not. He doesn't shy away from revealing all the trashy stuff he did. It's not like this is not a flattering self portrait. Even though it's technically fictional, it's. But he specifically says, "I won't tell anyone this." That and it's just a throwaway yes. little passage. But yeah, throughout the rest of the book, I feel like all he did was typical dirtbag stuff, like steal people's fucking money, take advantage of their, you know, charity and, you know, just lie. But My which is all bad. Been one long series of things imposed upon those closest to me. 
well, maybe he's imposing things on the young Chicagoan broads that he was picking up. Yeah, I don't but know. I mean, he sh- met them in bars, so I have to assume that they're not 12. True. They could be 14. It was the old days. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's impossible to tell because you're never sure if something is actually happening, what really happened. And also, this is technically fictional. So, or if it really happened, or if it yeah, really happened in this in the fake story of the in the fictional story of the book, or whether it actually happened in real life, yeah, you can't really tell. So it talks about, and then I think probably the next part is it talks about him going off to college at USC and the where he first meets Gifford. Does he ever actually meet him? Uh, yeah, he just sees him once time, at a bar. One and Frank Gifford time smiles at him first. Diner. First, oh, yeah, he sees a woman walking across the quad, and he's like, oh, my God, who is she? And someone's like, that's Gifford's girl. And that's and then they have an argu- a small argument about that. And that's, But Gifford was the star, I guess, wide receiver for USC at the time. And then He was a tailback. Up, whatever that that's means. I really don't positions know. I know. Uh, oh, a tailback? No, that's like an old-timey position that doesn't really exist anymore. Well, there you go. But it, I like when he describes how hot the girl is. It's because I think these are really like there's some really beautiful writing in this book, like really interesting turns of phrase. The whole thing is a ton of them. She has she had, quote, a figure that was like a swift, unexpected blow to the diaphragm. (laughs) That was a great line. Like, that's a great way, like, you know, to describe a describe anything. But like, that's it's a, you know, I thought that was a really cool line. I highlighted that. And it's Gifford's girl, and he's like, he goes through in a haze. Because he kind of, like, at this point, thinks of Gifford as, like, a parallel to his life. Where, like, he, like, wants to hitch his wagon to Gifford in some ways. Like, when Gifford is playing well, he's happy. And, like, when Gifford sucks, he gets shitty and old. He's like, oh, I suck, and I want to commit suicide. Like, he has this, like, forms this weird bond in his head with Frank Gifford. It's almost like a stalker. Yeah. And it, it is, it's weird, like... But very long distance stalking, which is yeah, what the modern internet is. He's obsessive. He's just fixated on this for whatever reason. In the book, his dad was a football star. In real yeah. life, he was not. He was a basketball player or something like that. I don't know if he is in real life. Frederick. I, th- I think those the, were the uh, days when, if you were good at one sport, you were good at all. All of them. That's all probably true. Pretty simple. It was also there is a scene where he plays against his dad. And I guess he's a high school student or like a middle school student. Yeah. And they play and uh, playing and basketball. And his dad fucking, fucking against beats the, him. Against the adult team. I yeah. think it was a charity thing. But his dad absolutely just destroys him. Because he's told to guard his own father. And he's, you know, like a little, yeah, little kid. Or, you know, just a fucking dominates school him. Kid. And the dad is like, no, no quarter. I'm just going <laughs> to absolutely score basket after basket in the two minutes you're assigned to guard me but it's in it but it, it is just that passage shows you how old timey the basketball they were playing was because he's it's like in two minutes he scored three set shots against me and a, no one a set shot is like when you fully stop and it's like a free throw but in the <laughs> middle of the court like <laughs> it's a way fucking old like the guys that lose to the globetrotters it's the way they play <laughs> you just, have a weird knowledge of basketball history I like I have weird knowledge. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember set like, knowledge. Set shot. The f- who the fuck does a set shot? It's like and then I did a chest Isn't pass. Volleyball. I think there's set shot in multiple sports, but mm. the basketball one is like you stop and you look derpy and you only wear like Chuck Taylors and and you you like 
push with both hands like as if you're raising baby Simba. It's it's a terrible. It's like nobody plays like that now. And uh, his his son, he's like, Dad, how the fuck could you do that to me in front of everybody? And the dad's is like, Hey, it was I was open. <laughs> like he just doesn't. Have <laughs> yeah. you tried not being a piece of shit? You, know? you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right? <laughs> just... So because he both reveres his father and kind of despises him at the same time, or despises him for being so popular and you know everything he wishes he was. But his father's dead also when he's writing the book. So who really won? Probably there so his dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except for those last couple months when he was just begging for morphine and wasting away. But, you know, up until then, it's nice. Uh, so after college, X goes to... Um, but basically, it's like, I graduated college with my degree in English, and so I'm going to go to New York and become an ad man. And he has this whole plan about how he's, you know, he like buys a new suit and they wrote these, and he and a couple of his friends wrote the most ridiculous resume full of, you know, fake accomplishments that are, you know, not real at all. And they sent it out to all the different ad agencies and he gets all these, you know, interviews and then he's terrified to go in and do any of them because after he's walking down the street and it's like, oh, wait they might actually ask me about some of those things on the resume that aren't real. And then he freezes and basically doesn't go to any of them. Or he walks in and then after five minutes is like, well, tells the secretary, well, if Mr. So-and-so won't see me, I'm out of here. And then basically fakes his way or convinces himself that he's either too good for it. Although he was really like, you know, I was, I was just scared. He does do he does a few interviews where he basically acts like a huge douchebag and just like, why should I work here? And like just like reverse psychology and it kind of works. I, I didn't know you could neg your way into a job. You can neg your way into almost anything. But like it's like you know, it reminds me of uh in Step Brothers when they do the job interviews and yeah. uh, they're fucking horrendous and they go, actually how about we interview you? <laughs> like the first thing they say, one of the, and the guy, and the guy's like, okay, all right, that could be an interesting exercise. And like, how much money do you make? <laughs> it's just instantly. <laughs> That's because what he does, like, because he he thinks he's hot shit, but he's fucking nobody. And he kind of knows he's not hot shit, but he figures if he can like pretend that he is, he can fool these guys because advertising and public relations are like, how good can you bullshit? It's a, it's a bluffing poker game of life. Yeah. <laughs> Though advertisement comes up a lot in the book. So I wonder if there's he works something advertising to advertising for it. a long time. But like different types and then like he meets, I guess, salesman guy. And like there's a lot of different ad stuff. And even later when we meet, was the fucking Bumpy or whatever the guy's name was? The the fat rich guy who also makes his money in advertising. Like everyone, oh, uh, the, the husband? Bimby or, or Bumpy? Brother-in-law? His brother-in-law, yeah. yeah. He has he he works in um, just being a rich guy, but at one point he mentions advertising there too. Like it just keeps coming up. I think it's it was the fifties where you know, it's like the Mad Men era where like advertising is the new cool thing, and if you're like somebody, you work in advertising with a suit and a nice haircut and several women to take dictation. Yes, when and to take letters. your dictations, but dictating it, it was like the it was like the. The I don't know, the fucking Wall Street bro of the day. Oh, the eye, the eye banking guys. Yeah. Oh, the worst. Tech. 
So the be getting a job in advertising doesn't really work out. And this this is the first time he spends six months on a Davenport, <laughs> which I had to look up because I really was like, okay, he said the word Davenport like it's an nine times. It's an couch, Nate. And it's like, oh, it's a couch. Okay, <laughs> yeah. great. It's a couch it, for fancy I think fancy it's the people. most, you, Davenport was the most used word in the book besides the... Yeah. Or beer. <laughs> it was just like Davenport this. And then on the Davenport, I went to the Davenport and I drank a Davenport on the Davenport with the Davenport. I just said it over and over. A Davenport a beer. <laughs> and then this is really what I interpreted as, as his first bout of depression. Just like sitting on the Davenport, drinking He's beer. There for months. And just like, or just like watching TV. Is this and he does he just this keeps eating Oreos? multiple times during the book in different places with his mom and his mom's place and then with the the counselor. I didn't even understand how that guy came into the book, the counselor. But I like when he's on his mom's couch and he just sits there with the dog. I forgot the, the dog's counselor name. is like a, a friend of his from the hometown. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. He's like the lawyer in town, but he gets disbarred. And in real life, I think it might have been X's fault, but I forget exactly well, why. In, in the book they were like, we need to cash this check before, because they had no, because the counselor's, the lawyer's the only one with any money. So he's like, well, we have this check from the client or from the settlement or whatever, and we have to, ca- and we have to, you know, get the client's signature before we can go to the bank, which closes at three, and they couldn't find the uh, client. So they're just like, X, you, you just put your signature, you just fake the signature on it. But that is a felony. So that is a felony. Well, I like when he's the, on the, the lawyer port. gets disbarred. When he's at the mom's house, and it's I can't remember the dog's name. It's like Christy the Third. Chris, yeah, I knew it was something the Third. <laughs> Chris, I Christy imagine they the just third. got they get a new dog, and it's always just Christy, and then they add a number. That's I, mean, I can't imagine it's anything <laughs> other than that. But he would sit and watch a daytime TV, which in the fifties or early sixties must have been really especially it's bad. Soaps. Oh, he does watch soaps. He mentions that at some point, but. He eats so many Oreos, and he's also giving the Oreos to the dog, which is just not good. But he's, he says at one point he eats so many that, like, the dog is like, no, man, I've had enough Oreos. Like, <laughs> I, I'm good. And he's just sitting there getting fat, eating Oreos, watching TV, and he's like, why am I not famous? I mean, to be fair, Oreos probably haven't changed almost at all in 70 years, and they're so fucking good right now. They must have been mind-blowing then. I bet they were better then, because they didn't use fucking corn syrup and shit like that. Or, you know, Maybe, it was like yeah. real Even goddamn better, I can't sugar. Even that. Considering the rest of 50s food was like, hot dogs inside some jello. And a <laughs> bunch of old potatoes covered in cheese whiz, which is probably pretty good, actually. Uh, a meat, here's a meatloaf and a, ba- and a green bean casserole. Like, those are... A chicken in a can. I was like, oh, yeah. So Oreos (laughs) was probably like incomprehensible. Like this beer. It was like a... I'll I'll have a beer. So I opened it a while ago. This guy drank more than us. We got to catch up. So he drank a lot of beers and, you know, a lot of... He also... You know what he didn't drink? (laughs) He didn't drink any uh, Bailey's Irish cream. Oh, my Uh, God. which, are, you drink, is it, are you drinking a, a doing a glass of Bailey's? Bailey's shooters, just, <laughs> just, a bit, just hitting the Bailey's. If you had two Bailey shooters, you'd be unconscious. I just, it's a, it's an Irish car freight truck. It's just a shot of Bailey's dropped in a cup of Bailey's. An Irish, an Irish uh, <laughs> truck bomb is a. It's a pint. It's, it's a, a large. 
It's, it's a in larger pitcher, thing. Right? Yeah, it's in a pitcher. It's disgusting. I've seen it done once, and I didn't like that man. He drank the whole pitcher. Is it still one shot, or do you do you do, like, was, do you put like a like, pint glass inside? In a, of in a car bomb, it's a half a Jameson, half Bailey's. In a truck bomb, it's a larger amount of both. So I imagine it's probably more than one Oof. total. Um, it's disgusting. Whatever, like, is there an Irish word for like fat person? <laughs> that should be the Irish that is fat the, person. A wee fatty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is from Evil Twin. This is called It's Bailey's Irish Cream Coffee, not Bailey's Irish Cream and Coffee, whatever the fuck. And it's an imperial style conditioned on Bailey's Irish Cream Coffee. I don't is know that what that means. other one that was like, it's chocolate cheesecake and not chocolate, and that other one they had a while they, ago. They had a, they had a few of those, yeah. yeah. And uh, this is a 12.2% alcohol stout that it's, it's been in my house for oh, oof, a really long time. And it's great. It's like chocolate, coffee. Nice, sweet pastry. Do you ever drink it out of a shoe? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember any other line from that bit. Is that old, old Greg? Old Greg. I'm old Greg. Uh, Never drink it no, out of a shoe. Not, re- not ringing any bells. Discussed not old a Greg clue. before with him. I, I know we've sent him the video. Mighty Boosh. Yeah. That guy who's the judge on the Great British Bake Off now. Uh, what's his name? Neil. Boosh. No. Oh, the Boosh. Not, not Greg. I don't fucking know his name. Uh, some limey. <laughs> um, speaking of Boosh, there's uh, Mr. Blue. We got to get to him. But first, there's this whole big passage when he's in the nut house in memory, I guess. And it's just like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but from the perspective of another guy that's not McMurphy or Chief Brompton. <laughs> because a big, loud Irish guy comes in and like you could tell he's tough and he's beating some ass. And he just comes in and he takes over everything. And his name is Paddy the D- Paddy with D's. Paddy the Duke. Which I'm not sure what. I don't think they ever explain why he's the Duke. Except that he like... Because he like knew the governor or something. Uh, because there was a show called Paddy Duke on I wasn't sure if it was a Paddy uh, Duke pun. Okay. Yeah. But Paddy the Duke comes in and they say like how he's just like so much... He seems so much bigger and he's so loud and like he just does... And I was like, this is fucking McMurphy. That's exactly what's going on here. But then that guy commits the unforgivable sin of beating them at ping pong. Oh, yes. <laughs> the line. Oh, do you have the line when he first beat the ping pong? I'm it trying was, to find it because it was really funny. It was really good. Things might have remained pretty much the way they were with us remaining servile to his imposing demeanor. Had he not finally committed a profound sin of commission, he beat us all in ping pong. <laughs> and then it goes on to explain how like the rec room had a ping pong table and they had like you know kind of house rules. Like if you won the game, you stayed, and someone else could challenge you. And he gets in there and, and like he beats everyone for nine days. <laughs> he just he, he dominates everybody. And and, there, and and Exley's like he hits like a girl. He sucks. I know how to beat him. And then he's just so mad that he can't beat the guy at fucking ping pong. <laughs> and then the guy at the end is like, I don't fucking care. And he just like quits. <laughs> he just he just retires the king of ping pong. Wait, he beat us utterly. He beat us to the point of bringing tears to our eyes and homicide to our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> he he yep. was... Uh... I mean, he, he and was then really cool. when and then when he finally gets to like he he's gonna leave the asylum, you know, because every there's like a ceremony they do where everybody cheers and goes, "You go get him! Don't let the fuckers get you down." But when Patty the Duke is leaving, everyone is just like, "Fuck you!" They don't <laughs> even like, look at they, him. Yeah, they're just like, 
get the fuck out. And then X is like, I hoped he would like turn at the door and look back at us. And the guy's like, fuck, no, he just leaves. Like, he's like, I'm fucking, there's a bunch of assholes. I'm, I'm out of here. Because, because he, in a sense, he's like what Exley wants to be. Like, that guy, this is beneath him, and he doesn't give a shit. And that's what Exley acts like, but actually, he can't get over even the most petty shit, like losing at ping pong to the boisterous, drunk Irish guy. Is this the hospital where there's Dr. Penis? No, that's him. No, He's no. Dr. Penis. Yeah, so he goes to Chicago. <laughs> so he, he doesn't get a job in, in New York, but he does somehow... He, no, he gets a job with the railroad doing PR. And he basically, he like... And he they told us they, they just... We had a number and reporters could ask, a quest, ask us questions that we were not allowed to answer. And that was his job. <laughs> it was something like we're not allowed to answer them. And he works there and then he gets transferred to the to the Chicago office and then he gets fired after two weeks not because he did anything wrong although he was I'm sure incredibly drunk on the job most of the time but now they were just like we're just downsizing they like yeah, literally asked him to move to Chicago and then after two weeks lay him off so that was pretty shitty but then he was just like I'm in Chicago he gets a new job but he's like I'm in Chicago having a great time and this is definitely a manic portion where he's like He's like going, you know, going to all. He was living in a neighborhood that was basically like the Williamsburg of uh, Chicago at the time. Very hip, all the bars, just banging all these women all the time. But he like pretends to be fancy, and and he one of his jokes is that he he tells women he's Doctor Pawnee. spelled P E N I S. Doctor Pawnee. It's great because. I settled finally on my favorite, the surgeon in residence at the high, uh, House of High Hopes, young Dr. Horatio P- Pani, spelled alarmingly, pronounced with Gallic gentility. <laughs> Dr. Pani, I always introduced myself, P-E-N-I-S. Friends call me whore. <laughs> whore penis. That's what his fake name is. <laughs> But I love Very it. straightforward. But again, this is like another great phrase there. Spelled alarmingly. <laughs> it's like, that's just that's a ridiculous combination of words. Uh, and 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 he manages to bang a lot of women. And I guess it's eventually is when he meets the woman he like almost marries. Betty um, Sue. Betty Sue. Is that that's no, around now, right? Not Betty Sue. Bunny Sue. Bunny Bu- Sue. Yeah. yeah. Who is like the hottest thing ever? But it's it was also weird. Like some guy at a bar was like, "Oh, there's this girl I know. Here, why don't you just go pick her up and meet her?" And he's like, "Okay, I'll do that." And she's so hot, and they hang out at the department store, and she just charges things to her parents' credit card. Because she's then, nineteen, she's still in college. But he's like twenty five ish or something like yeah. that, twenty four. And he's like working, so he's he's like a he's like a, a big. It's very different than today when you're 24 and you're like still basically 16 in the eyes of any measurable success usually. But he's he's like he's a man of the you know of the business world, and he's hook. He's you know they end up together, and she's so hot, but he but he becomes impotent and he can't fuck her, and they try they buy all these books by you know progressive ridiculous. Professors Sex of doctors, sexologists. <laughs> I find I think there was a good quote here too that I. Oh, I found the quote you were looking for, Nate, before about the rapiness. 
Oh, yeah, I have that one, too. It's if I took them home, and occasionally after the thighs went loose as sand and the challenge no longer provoked me, I packed them off in cabs. They always fought pounding, not fiercely, their tense little knuckles against my chest, to which I smilingly said, cut the shit. I took them on the floor and on the couch and in the bathtub and took them with their summer dresses up around their ears, took them greedily, perfunctorily, pointlessly, took them while they wept and said, no, no, no. Like, ooh. Part of that, part of that, it was like, yeah, he was like a macho dude. Like, oh, quit your crying. I don't care if you're going home in a cab. But then it just ends like, oh, no, no, that's not what it meant at all. But I guys find that they think there was some funny thing about the sex doctors, but I can't fucking find it now. I don't know. I can't find it. Never mind. Well, he does Never a lot mind. of banging there, and he goes to meet Bunny Sue's parents in a very weird, awkward weekend. In the weird little like hamlet that they own, because <laughs> yes, they were hoping it'd be a real estate investment. Rich. But not really. The dad sells insurance, like, and they've, they've invested everything into buying this real estate mm. that the mom thinks is going to be valuable, and it's going to be like the hip suburb, but it hasn't gotten there yet. Also, that's a very that's a definitely a criticism of fifties culture of the obsession with moving to the suburbs. But like everything like that seems great about the 50s, in the book, it's actually terrible. Or it's just, you're, you're just trading one set of shitty things for a different set of shitty things. I don't know if there's something particularly terrible about living in the suburbs. Well, just the fact that for the family that was like, yeah, we're doing the 50s thing and moving to the suburbs, but then the real estate, just nobody else is buying it. And so it's, they go bankrupt. And the dad is super, like He at one point he brings X out to the, Driver, I like to show you something, and he thinks it's going to be the awkward conversation, like, "Hey, I think you're banging my daughter." But mm-hmm. all he wants to show him is the electric automatic garage door opener he has, <laughs> and yeah. he just keeps How opening quaint. and closing it. And he's like, "Look at that, huh? Uh, from inside the car." And he's like, "Wow, I'll be you know, like whatever shit." Shucks, that is impressive. That'll show the Ruskies, like whatever dumb bullshit they would have <laughs> said in nineteen. 19- Golly gee whiz, that's exciting. But then eventually they break up because he can't get a fucking boner to fuck her. And he just like sabotages their relationship as he sabotages his whole life basically because he's a drunk piece of shit and is But he also seriously it's not mentally only, Ill. he doesn't only sabotage everything with drinking. He also like is afraid of success or he's afraid of actually getting what he wants. That's a good point. Yeah. He he when he gets close, he fucks it up on purpose, basically. Yeah. And the drinking does not help. Sometimes he does it by just drinking a ton, but also he just doesn't want the thing that he's supposed to do. And then, and then, so after the uh, depression of breaking up with Bunny Sue, he goes and stays on the counselor's couch for months, where, uh, among other very colorful characters, he meets... Back in New York at this point. Yeah, yeah back in Watertown. It's impossible yeah. to tell. He meets Mr. Blue... So great. So Mr. Blue is the best character in the book. He's just so absurd. He's a tiny little man. He's five foot three in his shoes with lifts. <laughs> and he weighs 150, could weigh no more than 115 pounds. And he says he's like 40 or something, but he's clearly 60. <laughs> I forget the exact year, but it's something in that age. Oh, he claimed to be 50, but I suspect he was closer to 60, perhaps older. And um, he had thinning you know, white hair and crinkly, sad, great-sized eyes of so penetrating a blue 
that when he looked directly at me, I found myself fingering my face for food particles or nose phlegm. <laughs> <laughs> but then he goes on, the, uh, Mr. Blue knew nothing about, uh, about anything. Like when they talk about football, he knew nothing about football. He only knew about the two things that introduced Mr. Blue most, quote, aluminum siding, which he sold, and cunnilingus, on which he suspected I was an authority. (laughs) (laughs) And then, that's really all they do, is they talk about fucking siding and eating eating snez. And it's really weird, because the guy... In a theoretical way. Because the guy has never done it. Uh, He's like DJ Khaled. Uh, (laughs) It's the one thing DJ Khaled doesn't... Yeah, that was like a, that was like a trending social media story that was dj cal does not eat the cat it's the only thing he doesn't eat i was gonna say the same thing (laughs) (laughs) um but this this section had one of of the things that made me laugh when i was reading this on the train and i had to like stifle this when he talks about uh eating the eating some box and he says you know if you can get past the smell you've got it licked Something my grandpa would say. I thought it was. I mean, it sounds so old timey, but it's a great, great, disgusting pervert pun. Uh, it's great <laughs> if you get past it. And he's just he's just constantly asking him like, "So what do you think it's like? <laughs> what is it like?" And he's like, and and then actually he's like, "I don't know." Like he's some, I don't know. Maybe maybe things were different in the in the fifties or sixties because later on, Bumpy or whatever insults somebody. Tells them that that they eat pussy or like it's 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 a strange uh, strange fixation. It's weak. Well, back when uh, really when lines. Richard Nixon ran for president in 1960, have you ever seen this? The buttons, the campaign buttons that say nobody lick licks our dick. <laughs> Just, the Virgin Committee made that. <laughs> uh, but there's another good quote about uh, fucking Mr. Blue. It was a little uh, after you find out after you find out about his fucking weird life some more. But it was a little wonder he couldn't accept the labia as a proper altar at which to place one's murmuring devotions. <laughs> like there's just so many, and, and and Mr. Blue's wife, who he who he called USS Deborah. I, I have I have the description of her. So uh, this is when Mr. Blue gets so horrifically drunk. Even though he says, I don't drink, because he doesn't... Or smoke. I don't drink or smoke, but and the loophole is, he doesn't pay for it directly. <laughs> so he'll like give Exley the money, who will then buy the cigarettes and just leave them on the counter, and then he'll take one to smoke. And so it's... I, no, I don't, I don't smoke. You know, I'm just borrowing one of yours and sending a booze. But he gets really drunk after they... They try to go into like the aluminum siding door-to-door sailing business, and Exley sucks at it. Mr. Blue tells a lot of stories about when they used to, back in the good old days when he had a uh, African-American gentleman work for him. <laughs> that is the, the word driver. he used, yeah. Definitely. I don't know if he says gentleman, uh, but <laughs> they had that guy uh, and this whole thing, and they, they would just sell all the goddamn siding you could imagine. And so they try to do it, and it sucks, but they strike out, and so they get really drunk. And, he's, and he used to take Mr. Blue home, and he meets Mr. Blue's girlfriend, but they're like pretending that they're not together because it's the she's you know they're they're not married, and she is Deborah, and Mr. Blue says she's a great girl, a little on the tall side, and then he describes her it says Deborah, a girls' gymnasium teacher, was indeed a little on the tall side, six feet one, with a sapphic coiffure 
approaching a brush cut. <laughs> Shoulders that wouldn't have gone unremarked in the giant, shoulder, giant shower room. From earth to sky, she was caparisoned in dirty tennis sneakers, navy blue gymnasium trousers striped down the sides with white, a maroon sweatshirt bearing of all things the legend property of USC in gilt lettering, a corded whistle hanging about her formidably bemuscled neck, and a black baseball cap mounted with the New York Yankees emblem. As other women exude the musky, arousing aromas of lilac powders and lavender perfumes, Deborah gave off an aura of rubbing alcohol, athlete's hood powder, and sweaty athletic supporters. <laughs> so just imagine the biggest, most cartoonishly lesbian gym teacher character. And she has, her chin is blue. Like, she has stubble. Like, you keep saying, like, and her chin is blue. Like, you can't, it's like... It's like an advertising campaign would have loved to have this blue chin on it. It's like a really bizarre thing to notice. Deborah had, quote, yeah, here it is, quote, Deborah had a big blue jaw. <laughs> Strong. I gave the jaw a most scrupulous going over, and though, amazingly, nothing like a beard revealed itself, her jaw was notwithstanding a brilliant and utterly disarming blue. So blue was it that I continually conjured an image of Deborah facing the television camera, her gymnasium-trousered right leg propped up on a locker room bench, her forearms resting comfy on the thigh of that upraised leg. A voice off camera earnestly inquired, Deborah, what does it really take to make a good defensive tackle in the National Football League? <laughs> Deborah smiled modestly, a hole opened in that striking blue jaw, and she mumbled, speed, tenacity, timing, an ability to get the job done. Perhaps she was holding up to the camera a can of Alpo. No, that's dog food, isn't it? She was holding up to the camera a can of Jet Shave and inviting the incredulous viewer to share an analogy between flattening Jimmy Brown and disposing of his morning chin hairs. <laughs> what the fuck is that? It's astoundingly progressive since they still don't interview women coaches about football. There are no lady coaches in football. No, there aren't still. I think there's like one who's like she was on, an she was offensive like a, coach or something. Yes, well, because it's offensive to have a woman woman coach football. Obviously, <laughs> it's an offense to God. He doesn't. God, it's his God, sport. If God wanted America plays, if God wanted women to be good at football, he, you know, he'd have made them good at football and not so good at making pies. Obviously, <laughs> and this is a, this is in the Bible. Like this is not even debatable. Yes, both football and pies are in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there's at least one. There has to be a some pie in the. There's a lot of Bible. There's not one baked good. There's a lot of Bible. There's definitely football. So they saw with a PH. It's played by the Pharisees, I believe. Um, yes, but not on the Sabbath. <laughs> so the whole Sunday thing gets fucked up there too. Shit. Yeah. Are you ready for a poll? No, we need to wait a day. <laughs> Monday night. Uh, okay. So what happens next? So what happens know. next is Mr. Blue dies off yeah. page, and we're not sure how. He tells a very elaborate, weird story, but then he says. But that's not how it happened. I'll never tell how it happened. Or am I? And he's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. Well, the, the version he tells is like the guy had lit a cigarette or something. And like it he ignited. in the bathroom. It ignited some sort of gas fume that made his uh, spray can of like uh, shaving cream explode. And the shell, the fragment cut his throat. <laughs> killed him. He embedded himself in his throat. And he kept pumping out blood. And they found him with the, the shaving cream can fragment still in his neck hole but then also he tells you know so mr blue 
was really impressed with his physical health. Like you could do a hundred pushups in any command and do 20 backflips in a row. And from a, from a standing position, he could just do a backflip or a front flip and all that shit. So he said, I like to tell the story that he was doing a backflip. And as he was at the apex of it, he died closest to heaven. And, you know, if he continued to ascend or if he crashed embarrassingly to the ground, I'll leave that up to the listener to determine. <laughs> so like, okay, so, so you have by the bus probably. What? Like it could be anything. <laughs> it could be anything at all. But, oh, but then it turns out he goes to the counselor and he's like, so how the fuck do you know who Mr. Blue? What was that about? And they're like, who's that? And it's like, you know, Mr. Blue, the aluminum. Yeah, nobody knows who that is. <laughs> and he's like, so Mr. Blue was just a guy who wandered into the flop apartment we were all hanging out in, and we became friends. <laughs> That's how you make your best friends, frankly. That's how we met Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, <laughs> and he's like, all right, I'm just moving on then. That was an exam, uh, strange, uh, strange thing. And I think the next thing that happens is that X is just, just suddenly, suddenly married. Yeah, I was like very confused. She gets a, mentioned once, like she visited like in him in the asylum, but she doesn't even have a name. Then it's just like no. the girl with the roan hair, and she brought him a carton of cigarettes, and he tried to act all cool. And he's like, "Please come visit me again." It's like a rare moment of his showing weakness but he doesn't actually tell you who she is so you're like did i miss something or how they met and then suddenly or her name even for a while no and then so suddenly and and suddenly they're married and her name is patience and she has a sister named prudence and it's uh and she works for i don't know she like helps people try and figure out their divorces like trying to helps them like either not get divorced or she makes recommendations to the court about what should uh, happen to the kids and stuff like that. But um, and, and and she and if possible to try to reconcile the couple, like an arbiter. But she can't sort save of, yeah. their marriage because he's just a raging alcoholic. So it, this is when he's doing his best to like actually try and write, but he can't come up with anything. He had right. some line about how. And as long as I had the first line, as long as I had the first line of the book figured out, the rest would just appear to me, or at least this is how I thought writing was going to work. And he, so he wrote down, you know, puts a piece of paper in the typewriter and he says, I, I live, live in, in a house. Or it's just I something live in Scarsdale. Like, I live That's in right. Scarsdale, period. And like, that was it. And, but he couldn't admit that he couldn't write anything. Like, he didn't know what was supposed to happen next. And so he had envelopes full of, blank paper it's like stashed around and it was like don't you dare read these when i'm not here <laughs> or and then one or two one he would just like have a copy of it was just like the first two pages of in search of lost time just like uh, inserted in the front <laughs> to make it look and he like just he keeps typing over and over again like one sentence and shit like that because his wife has money so she set him up like he doesn't work they buy him a whole outfit him with a whole bunch of shit to, to do writing and he's like I could write now and I like I'm trying to find like I highlight this line in this passage I'm not really sure what the fuck it's referring to because it's it was just a ridiculous line about you know he could write, write about whatever I would rise above my material and that my warm-hearted reader would be given glimpses into the soul of a genuinely magnanim- magnanimous if slightly bellicose writer I was to forgive the tyrannical client his boorishness the juicy nymphomaniac her exorbitant need of dongs 
(laughs) (laughs) Exorbitant need of dongs. But he, what he tells the wife is, uh, you can't see the drafts because, like, it's like you know, it's not ready and it's going to make you not appreciate the work. So you have to wait till it's all done. And she accepts that. Um, and it goes on for months and months. And then they will go visit her sister Prudence, who lives further upstate or something like that, and lives with her rich husband um, named Bumpy. Bumpy. Oh, one other, one other thing you said that she can't save her marriage. Another big clue is that he keeps telling her to recommend everyone gets a divorce, <laughs> and she's trying to save every marriage. So he gives the example how if there's any, like she has to interview both couples, and she has to write up a report, and if there's anything that one person does wrong, she'll try to hide that by talking about all their tremendous accolades and successes and whatnot. And it gives the example, he goes, she had a bittersweet habit of reticently sneaking the most outrageous facts into the body of the report, thereby making them appear more egregiously hard than in fact they were. If by his own admission, the husband and father of four had been recently arrested at the urinals beneath Grand Central for reaching over and grabbing a chesty and beribboned army colonel by the penis, <laughs> in her charitableness, patients suffered a compulsion to ramble on for two pages describing the man's commendable educational background his undisputed ability as a provider for his family, his deaconship in the Episcopal Church, his unquenchable love for his, life, for his wife and kids, his lavish grief at the whole sort of business, and boom, here he was grabbing alien cocks. <laughs> 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 you know, that, 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 could, that probably would have been effective on like a 1965 ju- family court judge. That, that, might have, that might have swayed things. Maybe. But then he keeps hanging out with Bumpy, who is a rich asshole who's fucking really fat and useless, and all he does is eat grilled cheeses. <laughs> and kill cats. And I have a beer for that. <laughs> oh, my God. This, this is a repeat, but I have to get rid of this can. This is called How Much Cheese is Even More Cheese? Chocolate Covered <laughs> Strawberry Valentine's Day Edition. From Evil Twin Brewing and Two Tides Brewing, it's a 6% alcohol sour ale with strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, graham cracker, cream cheese, and milk sugar. So wrong type of cheese for a grilled cheese, but... It's a very rich grilled cheese. <laughs> I mean, could that work? Is that crazy enough to work? A cream cheese you grilled know, cheese? You know, I'm sure it's you know done. a toasted bagel with cream cheese is not that much different. That's that's a good point. I mean, that's it's different, true, yeah. but it's not you know completely different. They're they're kin. <laughs> they're in the they're in the same they're in the same cheese house, same genus, <laughs> or. Maybe family of of, of uh, taxonomy. So this is fine. It's a sour, you know, quote unquote sour ale, but like just a v- vaguely tart strawberry sour ale. It's cool. I don't really get graham cracker or chocolate, but it's nice. But Bumpy lives in a mansion. You know, it's a fifteen room house, and he has his man cave, but they don't call it that. It's like his bachelor quarters or something like that. And his wife is not allowed in there, and the kids are allowed in, but he keeps. T- they have to have a password. And he changes the password every week to make it some other ridiculous religious thing that they have to say. And then the whole room is, uh, it's just like a, a cot, uh, a refrigerator filled with beers and various states of eaten grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah, that's living the fucking dream. With far mustard. As I can tell. Oh, it sounds pretty sweet. But it mustard. Also, what? With Did mustard, yeah. 
You put mustard on a grilled cheese? It's in the. I'm not saying that. It's in the book. Oh, okay. I he puts mustard on there because he I talks about how the mustard, insane. how the old this was grilled the cheese episode. sandwiches, the mustard's turned brown. I distinctly oh. remember mm. that line when he was that's, talking about how disgusting weird. the old grilled cheese sandwiches were. That's I I, I ignored that. Do you my need body? To find my brain quote? tried to protect me from that. No, knowledge. I believe you. No, I blocked I, it out because that's sacrilegious. Frankly, un, unholy. That's like Cthulhu level disturbing. You know, it's probably fine if I'm being honest. It just seems wrong. I don't know. I feel like it's bread, cheese, and mustard. That's that's most sandwiches anyway. It's it's like a hamburger, a cheeseburger, but like you took the burger. I don't know. It just seems. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, here we go. Uh, half-eaten grilled cheese sandwiches spread with a hot mustard, now sickeningly staled to a dung brown, tooth-serrated, mm-hmm. brick-hard ruins sitting amidst uncountable empty and half-empty beer cans. I'd That's try it. it. Mustard. I went to Friendly's. They have a sandwich there called the grilled cheeseburger. That sounds amazing. A cheeseburger, but instead of a bun, each half of a bun is a grilled cheese sandwich. Genius. It's an abomination. God bless the United States. It was probably delicious. It it was exactly what it sounds like. It's a grilled cheese and cheeseburger. It's not as enormous as you'd think it would be. As you think it should be. Which is what uh, I tell the ladies, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you could could unhinge your jaw like a snake, you could eat a full burger between two grilled cheese sandwiches, but without that ability, it'd be very difficult. Settle for this thin one. There are limits on what we can accomplish to protect us from seeing the true glory of God, (laughs) so (laughs) we can't have that. We could choose to prove God exists, but we do not because it's too dangerous by that, eating that sandwich. No one, no one could have that knowledge. Uh, but also the whole room, his bachelor room, is covered in posters of celebrities or like Playboy playmates that he's drawn like hair on their tits and stuff like that. <laughs> his posters of, quote, an edible-ass Miss June or whoever, whom Bumpy had admirably, admirably defiled with and humanized by drawing pus running pustules on their sleek behinds or thick sets of unseemly coarse hair between their breasts. But then he also has like all sorts of random cartoons he cut out of newspapers and weird and pictures of celebrities in strange, absurd poses. Quote, Stalin, for example, in a picture I had never seen, appeared to be rather pensively scratching his nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And then later there's a picture of like Trotsky picking his nose. (laughs) What is this strange? And then he also has, and this is where they form their weird friendship. He has scenes cut out of of actors performing Shakespeare and he has the quote that goes along with that scene but he has them on the wrong pictures <laughs> so he has like at two like, Brute no, 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 that's not Brutus that's, yeah. C- that's not Caesar that's Brutus and then he tries to he, he feels like oh man I just came up as a real pedantic asshole so he tries to save it and he's like did you know Brutus stabbed Caesar in the balls <laughs> and the guy's like that's awesome <laughs> he's like I love balls fuck yeah and then, har, and, har, just, har. and he keeps going. And oh, what's the diff? Bumpy said, stuffing half a grilled cheese into his mouth. Uh, and after a barely perceptible mastication, beginning to wash it down with a long swallow of beer. So the guy's just a fat slob. And uh, yeah, he's in the balls. Oh, and, then, <laughs> and he's like, where, where'd you hear that? He's like, I read it in Plutarch. He's like, Plutarch sounds like a real horny book. 
<laughs> I am sure that is not a horny book. I read it, it for you're into. I, I read parts of it in college. It's fucking terribly boring. Uh, then he talks about how Trotsky got hit in the head with a tack hammer, which I don't think is true either. Then they kill him with an axe. And the guy then the next know. day, the Trotsky poster, he's just drawn on it like a giant tack and a, <laughs> on the head and the hammer about to hit it. Like the guy is an eleven year old. You know, he's just he's a, a giant. But he's man rich. Day. And he's a dick. Like he He's a sociopath, maybe. He go besides you mentioned he kills cats for fun because his parents died he in a car accident a cat. to not hit a straight cat. <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't just kill them, he explodes them. He has used like a fucking magnum or something to He uses make, like a fucking like a deer hunting shotgun and the cats just turn into mist. Well, it says that he, you know, it leaves no evidence for any like detective to, <laughs> to do anything. But they also Bumpy will just go into a bar and find the crowd of people and just bu- like run into their conversation, derail it, and be an asshole and take over. And nobody likes him. And the moment he gets the sense somebody's going to say something to him, he just beats the shit out of that guy and knocks him down. He's like, "Next time, I'll fucking you know kill you." And then so everyone's kind of like in f- fear of Bumpy. And they hate him, hate his guts. But Which are substantial. He's fat. <laughs> he's very fat. At one point described he was wearing like a red sweater or something, and they described his stomach like a mosquito, a engorged mosquito ready to burst or something like it that. It uses the word rubescent, which is a, a good you know, a great word. There were a lot of great words in this. Yeah. If you're into obscure vocabularies there's even a part where he um when he talks about his writer's desk and he's like i bought this really nice dictionary i checked if it had these words in it to know if it was a good dictionary and one of them is a real word and the other one's a fucking fake word like i've looked it up because like is that real? he goes he looked up thurible which a thurible is a word that's like um it's like a fucking incense. It's a incense holder, and then the oh, other. Oh yeah, and he's like, and I also part. looked at the word gorp, and he's defined. I was so a, hoping that was real. I really, I want to. I think we should bring it back. A gorp quote: a freakishly obese person who eats constantly because he achieves a kind of erotic splendor when sitting on the throne. <laughs> <laughs> and so I looked at this. Like, if we keep using it, it will become a word. That's how it works. That's how that's how words are made. The world according to Gorp. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to see that movie. Though actually, Gorp is a word for um, like trail mix. Is that's because it's got a lot of fiber. <laughs> yeah, you get you. <laughs> very yeah, he's it helps right you now. achieve Gorp. Yeah. <laughs> Oneness with the Gorp. I must achieve Gorp. It's like it's like a state beyond Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> Only the Buddha has achieved Gorp. So, yeah, there's a lot of funny words here, but but the fat fucking guy uh, eventually... Oh, I don't know what happens. He has to stop hanging out with him because uh, his wife actually gets pregnant. And so they have to go back to their house. And then he only finds out later that uh, Bumpy and his wife split, and Bumpy is now living in Paris. And uh, he's just refusing to learn French sitting around being an asshole there and writing postcards is like, I killed another cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But eventually says, I was forbidden to see you when you had to go to the asylum because they said I'm a bad influence. Which was true. Mm. 
because as much as Bumpy was a sadistic asshole, he like functioned and kept his family fed. <laughs> so when uh, when X finds out that his wife is pregnant, he cannot handle it, like cannot handle the responsibility, and then immediately thinks that he must have, I forget why, but he thinks he has cancer, like his father had cancer and that he's going to die. Because he wants it. Because he wants wants it, yeah. And so first he goes, he spends all day at bars asking people first, hey, if I killed myself this way, do you think it would hurt? (laughs) And then also because his father wasted away from the cancer, you know, just in was like 78 pounds when he died. X is like, I was determined to not let that happen. So I just kept eating and I was the first person ever to gain 20 pounds. While dying of cancer, yeah. Yeah, while dying of (laughs) cancer. And didn't actually have cancer, obviously. Instead, he just was trying to sabotage his own life so because he couldn't handle the responsibility. Uh, And then the kids are born. No, yeah, the kids are born. No, they're not born. He's already in the asylum before then. I can't remember. And this is when you realize... She's in the asylum. Yeah. And this kind of overlaps. Oh, no, they're born because... Her sister is taking care of them while she comes to visit him, and he keeps talking about them as though this. And then he finally goes to see them when he gets out, and he doesn't care about them at all. They mean no, nothing no, to him. No, he first. pretends. No, no he, he goes through like this transformation, like the scene when he realizes no. that yeah. he loves yeah. his children or that they're important. But for a while, he's like, I don't feel anything looking at them. And then when he sees them again after some time has passed, then all of a sudden they're something he cares about, but it's kind of too late. Because he's ruined that whole thing and the wife, you know, he's like hoping that the wife will want to keep him around. Like she fucking has family money and is not stupid. Like she's not going to stick around with me. And she leaves his ass because she doesn't need him. She actually needs to not be with him. And at some point he does say that the best thing he can give her is for them to be rid of him. Because he's a alcoholic, destructive, schizophrenic, bipolar narcissist psycho and then he somehow manages to talk his way out of the insane asylum and then he's staying on somebody else's davenport or was it the counselor's <laughs> davenport i can't remember. they let him out because like the mom. doctors think oh, this mom. having oh, yeah. kids will give him a purpose and then it doesn't work and then he ends up on his mom's davenport and then he is also like kind of trying to write but he also refinishes furniture uh and then there's the scene when he goes to he goes to New York and uh, to see with his friend to get to the Giants game, but they have to sneak their way into the Giants oh, game. Yeah. But in the Giants game, uh, what's his name? Gifford gets badly, just like absolute, gets badly injured, fucking wrecked, just like absolutely destroyed by some other by some other dude on the field. And they're like, "Yeah, after four minutes of no response." No, of non-response to revive him. They brought out the stretcher and took him off the field. And to Exley, he this for him this was like my life is over too because he he felt so connected to um, Gifford, even though he'd only talked to him once and only very briefly. He like nodded hello at him, pretty much. And so he goes into another depression, but then he like gets in the fight in the in the village by saying some very, some things that did not age well. Yeah. (laughs) That did not, did did not age well, let's just say. And then, and then there's really only like one chapter of the book left. And then he finally, oh yeah, then he goes back to teaching and then it goes back to, and yeah, so then I left and then he's like, 
I was so angry at that first school that I went over to this other school in a different district. And I was, I was like, I'm going to set the standards. I'm not going to just pass everyone. I'm going to set the standard. But of course, he's a really brilliant guy when it comes to, you know, literature. But it's, you know, high school students don't know anything. And he said, he has this whole passage about how this teenage girl was just watching, was just, you know, listening to him teach his class on Julius Caesar. And then she starts crying. And he's like, oh, my God. She's terrified of me. She doesn't get anything of what I'm talking about. So what he does, he like, and then he f- f- goes and looks up their IQ scores, and they're actually really low. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the kids are dumb. So I ended up just kind of passing everybody, which is the thing I hated about the first school. But then he kind of he kind of gets his life together, or at least into a, a semblance of a thing. And then the book kind of ends. I forget if there was a big... Well, this is the first of three pseudo-fictional memoirs. So oh, and at the very end, he decides to like try and get in shape. This is one of his more manic episodes by walking mm. 20 miles a day, but he gets heckled by some so like preppy dudes in a car. And, but then he finds that, but then they like... But then the, the guys heckling him, they love tire... They like, you know, get a flat tire and he goes and just sees them along the road with the flat tire and he just goes and tries <laughs> to fight them and they beat the shit out of him. And this is where he says something about the Great Society. And he's like, and there's the, you know, it's something about Nick Johnson's Great Society. And I was like, oh, wait, so is this the mid-60s already? Or maybe just because the book was published I think it's because he was, I think it's because he wrote it then. He wrote it afterwards. So maybe it still took place before. Then they like... I think because he is... I, I got the sense that Everything that happens in this book takes place in like the f- five or six years since he like moves back after college. So it's still like, oh yeah, you know what I think? Because he said he was, because his hero Gifford was getting slower because he was turning yeah. 30. And so he's turning 30. And so it is probably like 1958 or 1957 or something yeah. like that. A lot of this is about how he's like this free spirit, not free love kind of guy, but like a little too progressive for the fifties. But a lot of this stuff would probably have been like more accepted seven years later. Well, Gifford's career ends. Anyway, in and then the book so just kind of sense. ends. It's kind of like, Oh, and then I realized, and I realized I would only ever be just a fan. I would never be. A, That's until a star. we got this book. Now we'll make him a, fa- a real star. Called a fan's note. Right, the whole point of the book, right, is like he wants yeah. to be a celebrity and he has to come to grips, like all of us do, statistically speaking, that we won't be famous. And that is a tougher pill to swallow for some people, I guess. This was a weird one. It was. It reminded me, so I did really like it, but it, it for me it was a combination of the Bukowski book. Which is how it was described to us. But sort of with, you know, more more flowery language. Bukowski book, but also kind of the bell jar. I can see that. Because it's a memoir of being, trying to be in the, trying to be successful in New York in the 50s, and then also being horribly depressed and then spending time in a mental institution. I would add to that. I think that you're, you're dead on. Uh, I also got vibes of Confederacy of Dunces, just like the main character, like the way he spoke about everything sounded very similar to the way this character spoke. You know, like the whole yeah, up, big words, uh, big words, and like using elaborate 
burns. <laughs> and so, yeah. Like there's one I can't. I didn't highlight. I was trying to find it, but there's one part where he talks about a guy he works with who's stupid. Oh, the guy who wrote like the skit about uh, PR. Or yeah, some shit. but it's like at first he he revealed himself to be at first incredibly, and then exceedingly, and finally unfathomably stupid. <laughs> like like <laughs> like he just keeps getting. Inc- and then they put on the skit, and everyone loves it, and he realizes everyone's an idiot. Yeah. Which don't you don't you feel like that sometimes? Yeah, I maybe the the tone of this is completely different, but I also got a slight slight vibe of stoner. I was thinking that too, definitely. Like the complete opposite tone, but the despair is still there. Yes, about this guy definitely. who like try as he might, just is not going to work out. It is also a more obscure but well-written novel from the 60s, which is what Stoner was. Yeah. Also, so, I mean, obscure to me is what I mean, because I had never heard of Stoner before we're like, before one of you guys was like, let's do Stoner, and I'd never heard of a fan's note. Oh, no, we, we, that was recommended to us by another patron. That it was, okay, I had never heard of it before that. I'd never heard of it at all. I didn't even know the fucking author. Nope. It was like the guy who wrote Star Wars songs? Nope, different guy. <laughs> but it was, you know, similar. Like this guy, uh, Exley wrote these this book and then like this book like put him on the map. Like he won like the William Faulkner Award for like best debut novel. And it was, I guess, you know, Faulkner esque like stream of consciousness kinda where you're just like, I don't know what the fuck is going on three quarters of the time. I'm enjoying it, but I don't know what's going on sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it, but it was relentless and it was hard, meandering. It's hard to read. It was a it was a hard book. I mean, but it was also it also didn't have a plot, which is it was just this dude shitting out his thoughts for 600 pages, but very well composed. It was beautifully and eloquently written, but it was still just this guy taking the cleanest diarrhea anyone's ever had. It's just an, a verbal onslaught, and it changes constantly. You don't know what the fuck's going on. Also, if you ever want an example of somebody who knows how to write with semicolons, <laughs> this is the book. <laughs> he uses semicolons and like a semicolon in like every third sentence. Well, he would have to because he mentions in his like drafts he would write thirty page long paragraphs. So you gotta know how to rock a semicolon. This really point. did have long paragraphs. I mean I read it on an iPad and there were many, many times there's like a, just a solid block of text and then like f- then I like flip to the next page and it's still a solid blocks of text and it's like, wow, he has long paragraphs. This is the literary equivalent of a man sitting next to you at the bus stop and telling you his life. The plot of Forrest Gump? <laughs> Yeah, but like faster and and well composed language. Yeah, it's it's, it's beautifully composed, but it, it it's diff- you know the the first chunk of it I read I read while commuting, like on the train. So I was reading it in like batches of like you know half an hour, forty minutes, and it was really hard to get into at all. Like it was hard to even understand it. I was not in like I wasn't into it in any way, and then I just sat on the couch and I just read it for a few hours and it was immeasurably better and very different just because of the conduct. Cause you have to really like get into it in a big chunk. Otherwise it just seems like someone's blog where they just like, you just stumble upon it years later and to read all the posts in order that don't make any sense. Yeah. I could see I had a similar experience. I mean, when I was trying, when I 
when I could only read for a few minutes, this was not the smart book to pick up. You'd think it would be because it is in kind of like weird digestible little chunks, but for some reason it works better smushing them all together like a casserole. Because well, my commute is a lot shorter now, and so I would be reading it. <laughs> I'd like look at I because it also doesn't say how many pages left in the chapter. I would just say like I just have the just like on the Kindle app and just how many percent. I literally was like started reading it and then when my got to my stop and like i'm still on 49 percent. what the fuck it's long i didn't even write i didn't even read one (laughs) percent yeah it was weird like sometimes i would have the same thing i'd be like i just read for a while nothing it didn't budge and then other times i'd read for what felt like the same amount of time and i guess i got into it more and it'd be like, I read 3% in that in 10 minutes. Like, how did that happen? It was it was strange. It's possible that it's just reading the thoughts of someone with schizophrenia. Yeah. Like, that amount of just scatterbrained, like, I don't know. It's not really schizophrenia, though he did probably didn't actually have schizophrenia, as we would call it today. But well, they say, yeah, like, precox dementia or something like that at one point? I have no idea. It's But it's, it is, like, the thoughts and thought process of someone who is mentally ill. It's difficult to pin down, but it is, in the end, an interesting book. Like, I was not, I didn't, I didn't like it for the first bunch, like, first chunk of it at all. Like, oh, I gotta just fucking plow my way through this one. Good thing it's one of the longest we've read in a while. But by the end, it was like, actually, I take it back. Solid. Very solid. But it's only like 360 pages. It feels like twice that. It's like it size four it was such a long book. It's it, because every sentence is really long. I also feel like the the sentences were really. It reminded me of like uh, Michael Chabon. Like the sentences are really yeah complex Dense. and well crafted, and I like that. I don't want to rush if you through were to that. Diagram these sentences. It would take years. Oh, that sounds brutal. probably because I don't know what diagramming sentences means, but I know it's hard. We had to learn that in high school. Did you do that in uh, freshman? I never did that. Oh, did you? Yeah. We went to the same high school. It all depended on which teacher you got for English. Yeah, I never did any of that. So we had to learn. I thought how it was something that. they started after we went to high school because I was like, I never heard of that. No, it's, it's from like the fucking fifties. Like nobody does that shit anymore. We like I, when I was in when I was in high school, it was not the fifties. When I was in high school, I one of my English 1850s. teachers was <laughs> an older <laughs> teacher who was near nearing retirement, and just one day she was like, "Yeah, you know, you could." Let's diagram the sentence, and nobody in the room had an idea, any clue what she was talking about. She's like, "Oh, you would do this, and you would do that," and it was like that is the one and only time I ever saw diagramming sentences actually done. We had a, I had a teacher in high freshman year of high school who made us do this, and he was such an asshole. Like it'd be on a quiz, right? And you have to diagram the sentence, and it'd be like this. You know, this this is worth thirty points or whatever it is. But and he would just take off. I forget if it was like a point or a half a point every time you got something wrong. But you could like totally fuck it up, right? Like you could be like, "This is an adverbial phrase," but it's like, "No, this is a prepositional phrase." And you could get more than the thirty points off. <laughs> like you could, <laughs> you, you could get, like lose forty points on a thirty point question. <laughs> and he bragged about this to the class. Like, dude, I don't know if that's, yeah, that sounds about right. I don't know if that's a really good way to teach anything, but sure, dude. So this was recommended to us by a patron, uh, one of our patrons who we speak with regularly because he's, he's he's a cool dude, frankly. He, he is, puts actually. Our, he puts our stickers everywhere through America. 
It's on a one-man quest. More than more than us to put our <laughs> name out there. <laughs> He's put up more stickers than He's I have. He's done more advertising for this podcast than we have. Uh, so, thanks, Brent. He thought we should read this book. Who else should read this book? I liked it, and it's it's not easy, but I think it was really a lot of passages are beautifully written. It's an interesting book. It's I don't know if I get it, but if you like literature, I I, you know, I don't know if this thing's one like where you where you can like get it or not. It kind of is. It's not like a fiction book where you're like, "Oh, what did they mean? Is this a metaphor for industrialization?" Like this is you can kind of you, you Maybe you can like get a message out of it, but I, I don't know. Is there something we? I don't know if there's anything I missed. I'm sure there were details I skipped over or just can't remember because there was so much. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, it is a '60s reflection on the '50s, and it's very critical of the '50s. Yeah, and that was popular in the '60s, so that's partly why he won the award. It but it's also well written. I did like the phrase uh, "making the American mistake of equating success with wisdom." I think that's still pretty poignant. I think he gets a lot. I mean, I I think his whole idea that I want to be famous and I should be famous is ubiquitous now with the internet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like people are like, what do you mean? People don't, who is not liking my posts? I put a picture of my eggs Benedict. I just, (laughs) you know, why am I not getting more likes? You know, and I mean, there's there's a lot more to, to, there's a lot of like psychological shit going on there with like, you know, dopamine shit every it's time. Cripple, you get, it's crippling a generation. It's really terrible. And, and I'm afraid for my child. Like, what world she's going to inherit? But there might not be a world by the time she's old enough to have the internet. Oh, so. God. <laughs> I don't know if that'd be an improvement or not, honestly. Um, <laughs> but the idea of, like, celebrity culture, like, that's fucking everywhere. Like, that is, you know... the. F- I mean, that's actually not new. I think it's more ubiquitous than it was in his but, day. They didn't have social media back then. You weren't connected to it all the time. And I don't think, and you didn't hear everything a celebrity said because you'd have to look for it in the newspaper, you know, or or <laughs> find them on, you know, some fucking panel show with whoever, Jack Parr hosting. Or that was only on for half an hour a day cause, sometimes. Because TV just stopped at nine o'clock. <laughs> just, like, that's enough TV for the day. Go to bed, everyone. You sang the national anthem and you went to sleep. But, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was quite the same as today. Like in, you know, 1958, Frank Gifford would come off the field and be like, hey, Frank Gifford, what do you think about the situation in Israel? Like, who the fuck wants his opinion on that? He plays football. Like nowadays, like people, like people expect guidance from celebrities. Like people, like the celebrities like weigh in and they post some Instagram shit. With well, their, the smart like, ones don't weigh in. So, but. Or the, the. The smarter, the less ones. dumb, <laughs> but they like weigh in with their fucking quarter baked opinions on things they don't understand because none of them actually have an education. Like I don't give a f- like I don't know why anyone does give a fuck what a Kardashian thinks about anything, let alone like oh Kim Kardashian said to vote for this guy, so that's a problem. I'm gonna think about that. Like I, I that that is so normal now like people are like oh taylor swift finally spoke about politics like why should she she sings mediocre songs like that's her job why should we whoa. care whoa she's 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 she she sucks <laughs> she's not as good as she was if she was good <laughs> she's, whatever level it started at whatever you call that it's not that level anymore yeah that's true 
but that you know, I don't think it was like that. Even social media or no, maybe social media um, amplifies no, this. It was, it was it was not like that before, but just because just for ease of happening upon it. But you know, the fifties could be criticized for a great many things. Sure, not that we've gotten better at a lot of it. Well, you know, football's probably better. <laughs> it's a more fun game to watch. Instant replay. Was it was it integrated back then? Yeah, yeah, it was. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, it was must have been it must have been terribly boring to just like listen to the radio to hear someone talk about a football game. Can you imagine that? Like, well, they didn't well, have uh, they probably didn't have four hours of commercials baseball. for every game. Did well is a better did well when uh, radio when there was only radio and football didn't really become popular until television was invented and so tele, uh, football is more of a television game. Yeah, because there's like forty moving things at a time or like twenty moving things. Yeah. How can you? And every play is only two seconds, and then it's like, well, we've got an entire minute to wait till they decide to do another thing for two seconds. Yeah. And they made one yard. All right, now let's wait another two minutes. Oh, they called a timeout. Okay. Yeah. Here's an advertisement from Chesterfields. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's on the field smoking. I'm sure sure if you go back and look at pictures, you'll see maybe, I don't know if you'll see players on the bench smoking, but certainly like the coach (laughs) will be, have like a cigar in his mouth (laughs) and wearing a full suit. I like that of football back in the day, like the, the classiness of it. The guy's wearing like a fedora and a suit on the side of the football field, yelling out shit like, go step on that guy till he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's classy because he's in a fedora. (laughs) Um, But I guess anyone who likes literature should check this book out because of the way it's because of the quality of the writing. In terms of the plot, I'm not really sure who I would recommend this book in that it's dimension. It's just a memoir, but it's not even like that there's a through... Well, I mean, there is a through line, but when we did um, The Glass Castle, it's the story of being a child and then growing up. And so it has at least a a place where it starts and a place where it's going, whereas this book is just kind of like crazy stories from my life that were told largely out of order, and then I will eventually try and find some meaning in them. Yeah. Isn't that how we live life? <laughs> <laughs> we live life in order. I mean, it's we true. We figure it out in order, but yeah. we live it in order. Unless you're a time traveler, but then your life is still in order. It's Every, everyone else's is not in order. Yeah. Well, I guess. Tell us what you thought. Send us an email to drunkguysbookclub at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at drunkguysbc. Or go to Facebook and Instagram at drunkguysbookclub. And if you want to support the podcast one more time, you can leave a review. Tell help spread the word and or head over to patreon.com slash drunk guys book club and thanks again to our patron brent for suggesting this book to us and you can also uh go to goodreads where we read goods and bads and sometimes in betweens or go buy a shirt from our website you cheap bastards that's a shirt not a shit i'm looking at you fucking patrons <laughs> And check out the Hopped Up Network, a network of independent beer podcasters. And thanks for listening.